Today's guest is Stacy Sims, a viz expert, former rower at Purdue University, an incredible performance physiologist specializing in women athletes. Stacy is the author of Roar, a book all about how we can match our food and fitness to our unique female physiology for optimum performance, great health, and a strong body for life. In this episode, Stacy shares with us how we can use our periods to help train and perform better, specifically around fueling. We need to fuel, especially as women. We know from some really good, robust research that's come out that women do better in a fed state. Stacy also helps us to better understand the hormonal differences between men and women, and how these differences can guide us on how to best strengthen our bodies. At any point in the menstrual cycle, you can come and bring your A-game. For women athletes, Stacy highlights the importance of fueling our bodies and tracking our menstrual cycles. We know that you can do some nutrition interventions if you feel a bit flat. And we also know that the psychological supersedes the physiological on any given day. Paying attention to these two components of our health can help each and every athlete become more in touch with their body and improve their performance in sport. Stacy's work is truly so groundbreaking and inspiring. We're so proud to have her as part of our Viz community as a Viz expert, as she's breaking down the barriers in women's underrepresentation in sports science and research. Welcome to the Voice in Sport podcast, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, you are such an incredible force within the field of sports science and specifically around women athletes. So we're so excited to go deep today in some of the discussions around getting your period, what it means for your performance and training, and ultimately just learn a little bit more about you and where it all began. So let's start with the very beginning. You grew up in many different places around the world. So how did this shape your curiosity? Oh, yeah. Being an army brat, going to different places across the years and being introduced to different cultures. So I spent my formative childhood years in the Netherlands and traveling all over Europe, landing from Europe back into San Francisco, going to school inner city, and just being exposed to so many different cultures, so many different ideas, the way people approached problems. And it was very interesting to see on the outside versus what was happening in the U.S. So having a different global perspective, even from a young age. Yeah, that's so incredible and also so important to have that global perspective. You know, a lot of things are different, but so many things bring us together, too. So, you know, also, I'm curious to know how you were introduced to sport and when you first started playing sports yourself. Did you start seeing gender performance differences from the beginning or is this something that you noticed later on? Not from the beginning, for sure. It was definitely later. But I think my first introduction to play sport was my first bike. And then realized that I could ride my bike and get away from my sister. It was like freedom. So the fitness that came with cycling then kind of translated into doing hockey, field hockey, and running. And then when we hit San Francisco, there was no field hockey. So I concentrated on running and joined the cross-country team, ran for my high school, ran pretty well. And then as I got to university, I didn't want to run anymore. I didn't want to be competitive running anymore. So I walked on to the rowing team, dropped a, a scholarship to run at Purdue and walked on to the rowing team and found teamwork there. And it was great. And I think that was where the real insight came of being part of a team sport 
because when you're an individual sport, you're doing your training and you're looking at how you're adapting, but you're not really comparing to someone else that you should be working with. But when you get into a team sport and you're working together for a common goal and your training is similar, you're trying to maximize adaptations. And when I got into it and got into this environment, I was sort of interested to see what the training modalities were because I had just transferred out of poli sci into exercise phys. So starting to learn more about exercise physiology, training protocols, and also being an athlete at university and seeing that the men and the women were training the same and we are all gearing for the same races. But there were times where it seemed the men were adapting a lot faster and recovering better than we were as lightweight women. So I, being inquisitive, as I always have been, I asked those questions in the ex-vis classes, like, why is this happening? And no one could give me an answer. So then I really started going, well, well, where's the research? I want to understand being that kind of person. And then being told, well, we don't really research women. We just generalize for male data. We don't research women because we don't know enough about men. Or women have a menstrual cycle, so it makes it too difficult to study women. And as a female athlete, taking a step back going, what the, what do you mean you don't study women? And then really noticing in the textbooks, it was always a reference to the reference man. And if you're looking at results or norms for VO2 max or lactate threshold, you realize that it's a percentage of the men that they've just dumbed down. And when you're asking questions about it, it's like, oh, yeah, we take 80% of what a max man is to apply it to women. Even right down to like protein recommendations are based on sedentary men. And then that is what recreational female athletes should have. So there's so many things that have been generalized. And it just made me mad because <laughs> I want things to be fair and just. I always have and I always will. So when someone goes, well, you need the same thing as that old man over there. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> because... As I sit here as a young 20-something-year-old woman, I'm pretty sure I'm very different from that old man over there. So then that kind of pushed forward into my master's degree where I did overtraining, sex differences and overtraining, trying to understand mood differences, immune differences, and then had time out working in the real world before I went into my PhD. Yeah. And so my academic career was kind of driven, not kind of, it was completely selfish, I wanted answers for myself and for my teammates and to be able to tell women, these are the things you should be doing. Then I would get questions and have the availability to go into the lab to answer them. So it's kind of been that parallel of these are the questions that are being answered. I can go in and answer them and then I can disseminate it and apply it and try to get better uptake for women. So when you were in those labs and you were doing those tests, you know, and you were finding, you know, different results, like were you dismissed or was there was there a lot of listening to kind of what what it was that you were finding? Oh, no, no listening. Are you kidding me? No, I've been told many times across my career that I'm not a real scientist and that these results aren't valid. You need to like put them as an outlier. And even like you have metabolism labs in undergrad where you're learning about the body. You're learning about how the body responds to exercise. And I was one of the only fit women who would volunteer for like running on a treadmill for two hours without any kind of fluid or food or various other kind of crazy exercise things because I wanted to find out more about my body. 
And there'd be times where my results would be so far away from what they were used to getting from men that they would blame me for not standardizing. And hindsight is that it was my menstrual cycle, like not on the moment or in the day, but, you know, a couple months later, looking back at it, going, wait a second, the reason why my results were so different that day than the first time we did it is because the first time I did it was right when I was on my period. And the second time was, you know, almost a month later. So I hadn't quite gotten to that stage. So that's why it's different. But instead, they would throw the results out and be like, it was your fault. You didn't standardize. Why didn't you standardize? It's like, I did. I'm a, I'm the daughter of a colonel in the U.S. Army. Of course I standardized. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Okay, so just to, for context, right, what, what year are we talking about? <gasps> Early 90s. Sorry to do this, but important. Okay, yeah. early 90s. Okay, early so around 90s. that time also. Okay, also President Clinton, right, was in office. Mm-hmm. And that's when he actually mandated that we start using female mice in science research. Right. And and right before that, it was all male mice. Right. And that obviously affected like a huge amount of scientific research. And so then you kind of go to a niche, which is sports science. And here you are kind of in the 90s, the same sort of thing happening. And I guess my question is for you now, we fast forward to 2020. Has there been a lot of progress? Because I've seen a stat from 2014 that said estimates roughly 10 to 35% of research subjects are women athletes. So still very much the minority when we represent a much bigger population than that. (laughs) So where are we in this journey of kind of getting to representation in sports science and research for women? We are still very far behind. It's been really only the past four-ish years that there has been a push in sports science to look at methodology and include women properly. Up to this point, women have been tokenistically included where they're included in a study, but just in the low hormone phase or only if they're on an oral contraceptive pill for a, quote, steady state hormone profile. But that's not appropriate either because OCs are experimental in their own right. And so we're like, well, you're testing the OC, you're not testing the woman. So these things are starting to come out. There have been some really good methodology papers that have recently been written, but the follow through is still in its infancy. It's good to see that there's a wave of younger scientists that are coming up that have been mentored by people like me and my colleagues, so they understand it. But it's going to take that generation to really bring it and to be like, okay, this is how we do research on women. And I always say, if research had originated from the female environment, we wouldn't be in this place because it would just be normal to look at hormone perturbations so that we would actually be able to do those correctly. So why why the hurdles to include women in sports science, and like if we just go all the way to, all the way back, I mean, we just talked about how like the more macro general science industry wasn't including female mice, but why is it? Do you think that like we started in this space of like not including women in sports science research to begin with? Like when you think about just like how did we get, how did we get here? It's a very much a cultural nuance, and it all stems from what it means to be successful in sport. So if you're thinking about 
all the attributes of being quote successful and how that originated, it came from, uh, you know, the Olympics and it was just men and women were fallible and they had a menstrual cycle and they had a bleed phase and they were delicate petals and they wouldn't be able to withstand the rigors of going through a scientific study, especially if there was physical activity involved. And we all know that's complete BS, but that is the cultural mentality that has shaped the way research has been done. And now we look at things like lack of female participation. And then we know that women want to participate, but now it's recruitment language or how the study is designed. So women are like, well, that's not quite for me. It's very male oriented for talking about hypertrophy studies and all the language that goes around a strength training study. It's very masculine and it's a bit off-putting unless, well, I shouldn't say to everyone, but to most women, because they're like, ah, just, it's not quite me. I don't know if I could fit into that environment. So there's a, a very much lack of participation because of recruitment strategies, language around recruitment. And lack of awareness of how to encourage women both to participate, but actually when they are in a study, because we know, again, language and motivation is different for women. So if we're looking at how is a study being done, yes, we get women in, but there's a, a dropout rate. And then when they're in the study, there are a few that stay, but they still feel a little bit, yeah, unless it's an all women's study. There's a couple of papers that I've reviewed and one really stuck out recently where the authors actually wrote, we tried to recruit women. We got three <laughs> out of 36. So we're not using their data in this because we don't have enough to determine sex differences. They use, you know, more flouncy language, but my automatic thought process is, why were you so unsuccessful in recruiting women when you had a wide population at your disposal of both men and women who, because it was military, were more than likely being told they had to participate? And that was one of the comments I pushed back to them. And they didn't have an answer why. I was like, well, let's look at your recruitment stuff. Let's look at the study design. But they had no idea why they could only get three women out of 36 participants. So there's still that wow. whole lack of understanding and awareness. Well, what advice would you have for a young girl who's maybe in the Viz community that, you know, is super inspired by getting into this field and wants to pursue research, but knows that they're going into an underrepresented situation? <laughs> what advice would you have for the young girls to, to get them involved in this research? Maybe follow a path like yours. There are some really good mentors that, like I said, up and coming postdocs into new research positions that are really getting into some of the more male oriented areas of thermoregulation, of protein and, and muscle development. So finding someone that can be a good mentor, right? And that's kind of what this is all about anyway. But also looking at some of the more liberal universities, because then you're going to have more like-minded people who are more open to what's going on, looking at how people are identifying. Are they true sex differences, biological sex differences, or are we looking into more the cultural aspect of, of gendered science? So there's lots of really good universities that have good researchers who are now out there saying, these are the things that we're doing, come on in. So it's being cognizant of where you want to go 
and who is there to be able to help guide you. I love that. Well, and as, as women athletes, right, we have so much experience also ourselves that we can apply to the research and we come with like a really unique point of view. So we really do want to inspire more girls to get into this field. Absolutely. It's so important. And, you know, for you and your journey, right, you got your master's degree and then you kind of took a break, if you will, not break, but <laughs> you didn't really take a break because you went on to do Ironmans and bike racing. And <laughs> I guess I want to talk a little bit about that moment, you know, because you, you did, you know, you went and did the Ironman world championships at Kona and you said that that was a definitive point for you between the hormone phases in women and how the impacts, how that impacts performance. So what was it about this point and what exactly did you see in Kona that sort of, again, I guess, inspired you to continue in this field? Yeah. So when I went to Kona for the first time, I was right on the cusp of starting a PhD or contemplating starting a PhD. And Part of it, I wanted to do heat or I wanted to do altitude, and I knew I wanted to continue with sex differences. So training up for Kona, living in New Zealand, we had to do quite a bit of heat adaptation and acclimation and really prepare in pouring rain and cold temperatures to be able to race well at Kona. So we're looking at the Kiwi contingency. There was a group of us that all did very similar things with regards to getting ready for the heat. And when we got there, we all felt good. But on race day itself, there were some discrepancies in who finished with hyponatremia, so not enough blood sodium. And I was one of them. And when I got sorted, like I ate electrolyte tablets, had to pee like a racehorse, got my blood sodium up, right? And then started going, what's going on here? And then after the race, the next day at the breakfast, talking to the other women and saying, well, how was the race? And there were two other women that had a very similar experience. And we were all in the high hormone phase. The rest of them were in the low hormone phase. And I was like, there's something here and I need to figure this out. So then I went back and started my PhD looking at exercise in the heat, looking at fluid balance between menstrual cycle phases, oral contraceptive pill phases, and men versus women. So it was that defining moment that's like, here is something very real that is a clinical issue, but there was only three of us who all happened to be in the same hormone profile, even though we did everything the same as the women who didn't have issues. So yeah, that was my pivotal point to be like, okay, we got to answer some more questions. Okay, so you went into your PhD program. What, what at the end of this, you know, what are the key physiological differences between men and women as it relates to performance? Oh my gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> all day, my friend, all day. Okay. Well, there are a few things to consider, right? So we have actual sex differences that happen from birth. So we know that women are more type 1 fibers. Our hearts are smaller. Our lungs are smaller. We have different angles between the hip and the knee and the shoulder. And also in utero, with the exposure of more estrogen, females are more resilient to stress. Could you, could you just repeat that last one there? Sure. Females are more <laughs> resilient to stress. What, what? More CEOs in the house, please. I Let's know. Go. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, even our immune system, once we start you know, menstruating, it also allows us to be more resilient to stress in certain phases. So 
we have those sex differences from birth, but then around puberty, we have that epigenetic exposure or the altering exposure of estrogen progesterone for women. And then we have testosterone for boys. So we see what happens with boys, right? They lean up, they get fitter, they get faster, boom, they have more muscle mass. Their bone is, is stronger and bigger. They have more fast twitch fibers, all of those things that then are deemed appropriate for being successful in sport. And we see what happens with young girls. We see, you know, a little bit more body fat coming on. We have a change in our hip to knee angle, our shoulder girdle widens, our center of gravity changes, and we have a shift in fueling mechanisms and the fact that estrogen and progesterone then have a, a counter for how we use and store carbohydrate. It has a, a play on how we recover from exercise. So when those hormones are, are elevated, we stay in a catabolic state. We have a, a greater systemic inflammation. We have a reduced ability to use carbohydrate. So there's all of these nuances that happen around puberty that then continue all the way through our life. So we have the sex differences that start, which are from you know birth. And then we have this other layer of hormonal differences. So when we look on the baseline of what's different, it also depends on sport. Like in power sports, men have more fast twitch and they have faster velocity. So they are better per se in power sports. We look at women, they're more endurance. We know this just from the muscle fiber types and how we fuel. So women are, are better and catching up with men in endurance sport. And I say catching up with because women's timeline in sport is so much shorter than what male timeline in sport is. So with technology and physiological differences, it'll be really interesting to see in the next about 10 years how much more women can supersede men in the endurance space. Can we talk about the timeline when it comes to like when women peak in sport versus men? And is there any research that, that ties back to that? Because, you know, one of the areas that we spend a lot of time with at Viz is, is running, right? It's one of our largest communities here. And we often see a lot of young girls drop out of sport so early when really like their peak time can come much later. So is that just an anomaly for the sport of running for women or do you see that sort of across all sports? And is there a difference of like when women and men are peaking in their performance? Yeah. So men usually peak in their early to mid twenties, especially when we're looking at the power race sports, and then they'll start to be more endurant. Women across the board are late twenties, early thirties, especially with endurance based sport, like running, you'll see a lot of the top runners will start getting a bit faster in their late twenties. And then they'll really come into their own in their early thirties. And again, it has to do with what's happening in puberty because there's so many different changes that are occurring in the female body with regards to how our biomechanics are going, how our body composition is going, how our center of gravity is going. But women are not taught, or I should say, are not retaught how to run, how to land, how to throw with these new mechanics. Whereas boys, their biomechanics don't really change. Their center of gravity doesn't change. They just get stronger. And so the training practices are different. So if we're looking at that whole time period of from puberty to 1920, the training methodology and the training strategies that men do allow them to keep progressing year on year on year on year on year on. But the training practices that women go through doesn't stepwise increase 
because the body changes so much until they plateau after all of the changes around 18. And then they start implementing those training strategies, which is why they peak much later. It's so interesting, right? Because this is why fundamentally I started the voice and sport platform because girls are dropping out of sport around their people, like when they're getting their puberty and, or they're developing their breasts. And we, we notice that there's a drop off there and women are dropping out faster than men at that age. Absolutely. And so that's why we're, why we're doing what we're doing here at Viz, why you're a Viz expert, all these things. But it's also why I started the Voice and Sport Foundation, because I realized that like the, the science and like the research part of all of this needs to be wider and more distributed. We need to put way more effort into the sports science and research and women like you to fuel and fund more research because we have a lot of making up to do. Yeah. Like thinking about how, yeah. you know, in the 90s, we weren't even using pretty much women athletes. And you just said earlier on that it's really only been the last four years where you've started to see an acceleration of including women in research and having a bit more representation. But I think there's just so much education to happen in this space. And so I think what you're doing is so powerful. And I hope, you know, all the young women <laughs> listen to this podcast to also hear the context, you know, because we do need more women in this space as passionate as you are, because we have a lot of making up to do. So I guess as an experience, <laughs> as an athlete, you know, you were an athlete in college, you were an athlete post-collegiate, you went on to get your PhD. When you come back to that athlete experience at the high level, you know, what are, what do you think are like the three most important things that you did learn about your, you know, the physiological differences when it came to performance for women? First and foremost, eat. Because there's so many young athletes who do not eat enough. And it's also the timing of the food that's really important. And I say that because we have this history, you know, puberty and all the body composition changes. And unfortunately, the cultural mentality of calories in, calories out and doing fasted training and trying to make weight and all these kinds of things that really are not physiologically driven. When we look at the physiological drive to adapt and get better for sport, we need to fuel, especially as women. We know from some really good, robust research that's come out that women do better in a fed state. So what I mean by that is having something small before you do your morning session. So it could be a half a banana. It could be a protein drink, something small that's going to bring blood sugar up. The reason for that is we fuel differently than men. So we go through blood sugar quickly and then tap into our fatty acids. Whereas men will use a little blood sugar, tap into their liver and their muscle glycogen, and then get into fatty acids. So they have another step of carbohydrate reserve. So they can actually do the fasted training. And it's beneficial for men to do fasted training to adapt their bodies to burn more fat. But for women, we're already there. We have sex differences in the muscle that make us use more free fatty acids than carbohydrate. We also have estrogen progesterone that shuttle carbohydrate away when they're elevated to grow this really nice endometrial lining after ovulation. And we also look at some of the other nuances that come from central nervous system control and how we're fueling. So women are already at their maximum ability to burn fat. Then we come back to the training aspect. We can't do well if we aren't fueling for it because exercise in itself is a stress 
And we need to fuel for that stress. So the body understands that, yes, okay, this is a stress, but I also have fuel coming in that's going to allow me to adapt. So I don't have to stay in this breakdown state with elevated cortisol, signaling to break down my lean mass for fuel and signaling to conserve more body fat. Because when we see women who are not eating, they tend to first lose a lot of lean mass and then they have belly fat, regardless of what size they are. And it's because the body's in this conservation mode. And we say, okay, if we are to look at changing body composition, trying to get you that power to weight ratio, we need to look at the fueling and taking care of the stress of exercise. And then we can manipulate things outside of that if we need to. But for the most part, when people start eating and eating well for their training, their body composition changes pretty rapidly in a positive set. And so many women are amazed that they eat more and they lose, like lose body fat, not lose performance. And it has to do with fueling and it comes from the brain. So this is where I'm going to get a little bit more sciency. Right, so the hypothalamus is an area in the brain that controls our body temperature, controls our appetite, controls our menstrual function. And there are two areas in the hypothalamus for women that have these neurons called kisspeptin. So kisspeptin is super important because it controls and regulates appetite as well as control and regulate our luteinizing hormone pulse, which then controls ovulation. If we get to a point where we are not eating enough, then the kisspeptin is like, hey, wait a second, I need to start downregulating. I need to start conserving. So the kisspeptin neurons downregulate and the subsequent response is thyroid dysfunction, because everything starts turning down. We start having a lower resting metabolic rate. We start having less of that luteinizing hormone pulse. It starts to flatline. When luteinizing hormone flatlines, we don't have ovulation. If we don't have ovulation, we don't have estrogen progesterone. If we don't have estrogen progesterone, then we start getting into more and more endocrine dysfunction, which follows into low energy availability, relative energy deficiency in sport, when then every system is affected. So food is super, super important, not only for fueling to adapt, but fueling to maintain health. That was really only one. Now the other two. I was going to say, I was like, that was one. <laughs> now the other big two is tracking your menstrual cycle. Super, super important to track your menstrual cycle. If you are on an oral contraceptive pill, understanding why you went on it first. Did you go on it because you had irregular cycles when you were younger? Did you go on it because you have heavy menstrual bleeding? Did you go on it just for contraception use? Did you go on it because you had bad skin? These are all things that we need to reconsider use for. If you have endometriosis, PCOS, then yes, there's a time and a place to be using combined oral contraceptive pill. But the thing about the oral contraceptive pill is it downregulates your natural cycle. So you're not actually seeing what's happening with your endocrine system. The bleed period on an oral contraceptive pill is a withdrawal bleed. It's not a true bleed indicating that you have a healthy endocrine system because those hormones that you're taking have downregulated it. If we look at heavy menstrual bleeding, there's an alternative. You can look at using some drugs right at the onset of bleeding to really control it or using an IUD. Neither one of those interfere with ovarian function. And the reason why I bring that up is because I want girls to understand that having a natural menstrual cycle gives you so much input 
and insight from an objective point of view of how you are responding to training and if you are adapting and how stressed you are. Because we know that, you know, cycles go from 25 to 40 days. There's some variation in there and that's absolutely normal. But what we're concerned about is the bleed pattern itself. So if you start to notice changes in your bleed pattern, say your normal bleed pattern might be seven days and now all of a sudden it's two or three and the flow has changed. That's the very first sign that your body's under a lot of stress. So it's an ability to take a pause and be like, hey, what am I not doing that I should be in order to stay healthy? Am I not getting enough sleep? Am I not fueling in and around my training well? Am I highly stressed because it's exams? So it's a, a way to have a stopgap before you really get into endocrine dysfunction and some significant health issues that we then see down the track as soft tissue injury, bone stress reaction, gut issues, cardiovascular issues, body weight issues, which then perpetuate girls to drop out or are sidelined from their sport. So following and understanding your menstrual cycle gives you that objective data. The second layer on that is if you are tracking your menstrual cycle and you're using objective data to say, oh, I felt really fantastic on this training session. And then you notice that every month on the same day, you have a really fantastic training session. Then you know that you can dial in your training to have a really hard day that day. On the flip side of it, you might notice that there's a few days where you're super flat. So instead of saying, I didn't do something right, which so many women's heads go to, I didn't recover well, I didn't sleep well, I didn't prep well, what did I, or I don't know what I did, but I didn't have a good training session. And it's really coming down to physiology. It's your hormones interfering with your body's ability to really do what you need to do on that day. So if you know that, then you can say to your coach or you can, if you're self-involved in your training, you can be like, okay, on that day, I need to drop the intensity, work more on technique and mobility because I know the next day I'll be fine. So it's giving you really, really good objective data to kind of biohack and manipulate your training for your best adaptations. And then the third thing is resistance training. Doesn't matter what sport you are in, but resistance training for women is super, super important because we know that women do better with power-based training, especially with our muscle morphology. And when we're looking at how resistance training helps, it helps maintain a healthy metabolism. It helps with balance coordination and reduction of injuries. We also know that if you're doing a lot of resistance training work, it works to reduce belly fat and other fatty deposits that are hard to budge in women, but not in men. So resistance training becomes a really critical aspect, especially if you're looking at power-based sports or body, you know, power to weight-based sports. With that eye of so many women are like, oh, I've gotten to this point and I'm still not changing my body composition, so I'm going to do more cardio, which we shouldn't. You implement that resistance training because it's so beneficial, not only for performance, but also for maintaining a better body composition than if you're just endurance focused or just power focused. That's incredible. I wish I would have heard that when I was a high school athlete. And that's why we're doing this at this. So I really appreciate that level of detail. And I think where you and I are, are very aligned too is on this idea of like your period is your superpower. It is. And it can become, after what you just said, a natural feedback loop for you as an athlete that gives you an incredible advantage 
if you're open to listening to it and if you understand what it is you're hearing. So I want to dive deeper into menstruation and periods in sort of the next part of our of our podcast here because there is still this stigma around menstruation. And I just really wonder, you know, you've been spending a lot of time in this in your life. So where does this, what's the historical perspective? Like, how did it become taboo? We go all the way back to written records. And we look at things like religious manifestos, doesn't matter what religion. We look at smaller tribes. And most, if not all of them, have been documented by men. And in these, you'll read that women are in the red tent or they're at that part of the month where they shouldn't be involved in society. So that has kind of perpetuated this whole idea that when a woman is bleeding, she is tapu. She can't be around anybody. She's dirty. And then we have different cultural aspects that come in from different, like you have a lot of Latino culture, you have Pacific Islander culture and the non-normal Christian religions that all come in and talk about how women, when they bleed, they're bleeding out demons, or, you know, it's something that men shouldn't be around. And it comes from the fact that men didn't understand it. So they were trying to write a record of how to understand it. And their natural instinct was to ignore it and put women in this box that said, well, you can't come out to society because you are very weird and different at this time when you are bleeding. And we don't understand it. And then as we start getting into more modern days, women were told, oh, you can't do anything. You're a delicate flower. You know, your body's under a lot of stress when you are at that time of the month. And you'll see it in older movies where a woman will use an excuse to get away from men or avoid a conversation because men were just like, I have no idea. And I'm going to not step there. So then when we bring it into sport. Again, remember I was saying what it meant to be successful in sport are all these male attributes. So menstrual cycle was not discussed in sport because it really differentiated women from men. And we know that women have fought really, really hard to have somewhat of equality in sport. And we are not there by any means, but even the right to participate. So if they start pushing, well, I need some sanitary products on the race course that would be an automatic eyebrow raise and be like, oh no, you can't participate. You can't do that. So it's just kind of been tabled and no one talks about it. And the ongoing thought process is if I lose it, then I'm more like men. And so I don't have to worry about it. So that's where amenorrhea became something like, it's okay if you have amenorrhea and we know it's not okay because of all this cultural context that has built up and then transferred into sport. And so women have really been pushed backwards in the fact that they have this misconception of being fallible and not really as strong and robust as their male counterpart to be successful in what they're trying to do. That is the historical aspect. And I can see your face and that angry face is how I feel every time I talk about it. Just like trying to sit here and not be like, are you are you kidding me? Like, I know. Just, to hear to hear the historical perspective, I think is so important also for today's youth. And I, you know, for my daughter who's you know eight, and as you as you know, girls are getting their periods earlier and earlier and earlier today. So I'm already sitting here thinking about okay, 
how is my daughter going to feel about talking about her period? And what is the impact of this long historical conversation that you just, this long narrative you just described? How is that going to impact my daughter? I know how it impacted me. And in my high school and in my college with all my male coaches, I never brought it up. I never would talk about it. I'd hide. I'd, you know, all the things that you mentioned, you know, and that wasn't that long ago. So, I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And I I think like that, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking about this is a big reason why we're doing this at Voice and Sport, right? It's part of why you're in our community. We have to change the narrative and we need to do that quicker. And I guess I'm sitting here thinking like, how? How do we do that? How do we inspire women, but also the men that are the coaches of most women's teams in the United States, you know, how do we inspire them to also bring this conversation and change the narrative? Yeah. So this is where I've been really happy to see how like tech has stepped in with your online, like your fitter women's and your wild AIs, your apps and that kind of stuff, because with their coaching platforms, it takes a little bit of that tabooness away of a male coach having to approach or a young girl having to approach. It hasn't taken it completely away, but it's made some of these conversations a bit more accessible. And we're also seeing more and more of the younger coaches who are male coaches coming up and they're not so phased about talking about menstrual cycle because they too are understanding that it is something that is more of a wellness check. So girls who are having their period and they're regularly menstruating, the coach knows that they are healthy and they can keep pushing and progressing. So it's becoming more in that awareness of health metrics rather than the negativity of, you know, in the 1980s movies of girls sitting out from PE because they have their period, right? So I'm happy to see that, but we do have a little bit more, if not a lot more education to do. What do you think a, a, you know, a coach that's maybe listening to this podcast could do to make a menstruation and period conversation, a regular and integral part of a team's culture in a positive way? Yeah. So we've implemented a few things that have worked really well in development squads. So your 14 to 18 kind of range. We, some have used a traffic light system where a girl comes up and she checks in. She's like, I'm in the green today. And this is all based on menstrual cycle and injury risk, right? And then I'm in the orange, which means they're past ovulation. And so they can't quite do high intensity, but they're still robust. They can do really good practice. Or I'm in the red, which means they're in the late luteal phase, which is right before their period starts where the body's under the highest amount of physiological stress without training. So the coach is aware. Now, how the coach implements things is different. So we're not telling coaches to absolutely change everything they've had on the table for practice that day. It's just being aware of where his players are. So you're not going to tell everyone, we're doing our performance test today to determine the spot in the boat, or we're doing our performance spot or test today to determine who the traveling team is if you have most of your players in the red. Or the other thing is if you know that you have two or three players in the red, you can have your performance test, but you're not judging just that day. You're looking at a collaboration of other things that's going to make your decision, which most most coaches should do anyway. But the, the traffic light system seems to work really well. 
when we have some worry about more and more girls saying I'm in the red, so they don't have to train hard, which sometimes can happen. Coaches have switched to just having the question in a wellness check where people show up for practice and they go, okay, who's injured? What happened? How's stress? When are exams? Just that general wellness check that takes just a couple of minutes at the beginning of practice. And one of the questions that have been implemented is who's on their period or who's a few days out, right? And they either raise or they don't, or they come up and say something. But the culture of asking those questions makes it okay for the girls to be like, hey, yeah, me, right? Because everyone's doing it. So there are different ways of approaching it if we take it from that wellness angle. To continue listening to this podcast, please go to voiceandsport.com and sign up for free. Stacy goes on to talk about the different phases of our periods and how our bodies change within our cycles. The other key point to remember is your metabolism goes up after ovulation. So all those cravings that people have and the want for more chocolate, the want for more salt, all of that kind of stuff is because your body's building tissue and your metabolism actually comes up by about 120 to 150 calories each day. Stacey also debunks several myths relating to women athletes, periods, and their performance. Being in sport and having your period is empowering. Head to minute number 4240 to get started on voiceandsport.com. This week's episode was produced and edited by Viz creator Elizabeth Martin, a soccer player from Emory University. We are so thankful for Stacy sharing her expertise with us today and so excited to see all the incredible research and knowledge she is sharing with women athletes around the world. You can follow Stacy on Instagram at Dr. Stacy Sims. Please subscribe to the Voice and Sport podcast. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and send this episode to a friend that you think might enjoy the conversation. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Voice and Sport. If you're interested in joining our community, sign up for free at voiceandsport.com to get started. When you join Voice and Sport, you gain access to our exclusive content and podcasts, mentorship sessions from professional athletes, and access to the top biz experts in sports psychology and nutrition. You might also want to check out other episodes like Period is a Superpower, period, episode number 58, featuring biz expert Georgie Woonvilles. See you next week on the Voice and Sport podcast.